Alrighty folks, this is a content warning. Now for those of you who've uh, listened to Jake before, you'll know he's got some very hectic shit to talk about. So if you actually need a content warning, I recommend you switch off now. No judgement, switch it off. You probably just don't want to hear this. So I'm going to give you 10 seconds of silence to use whatever device you're using and switch it off now. Now, for those of you who want to know the content that you're being warned about, uh, some of the subjects involved in this episode are blood, bleeding, bombings, mutilation, shootings, suicide bombings, killings, and, you know, other deaths. And unfortunately, this does include children. Now, folks, this episode is not for everyone. Obviously, it's serious. If you are not in any current mental state to deal with any level of disturbing material, please switch off now. Alrighty, folks, you are listening to Talking Shit with Frazy, you bastard, the show about who the fuck knows, but anything goes. Folks, you are listening to episode nine. We had our mate Jake coming over from episode four. Now, we spoke to Jake before about his time as a wartime photographer, and we haven't quite got to speaking to him about his time as a medic, so his round is up right now. How are you going, Jake? Yeah, good. I'm doing good. Hey, um, thanks for joining us again, man. Like, I swear to God, I got a lot of awesome feedback about your uh, last episode there. A lot of people wanted to hear more, so thanks for coming back and joining us again. Yeah, no worries. Love being back. Like, Rock and uh, roll. So at the end of the... Oh, sorry, mate. I like talking about stories and just telling people, uh, you know, what's out there. Fuck yeah, man. I live for stories. That's why I'm doing this shit. <laughs> hey, um, last episode, we were just talking about sort of you'd uh, finished up your time as a wartime photographer and started doing the medico stuff. Uh, so what I might do, mate, I might take a bit of a back seat and uh, let you tell your story. All right. So, yeah, basically, you know, when we were, uh, yeah, basically, yeah, the media wanted to close me down. There was going to be no real work for for journalists and stuff, for freelancers. And I saw this need to do medical work. So I ended up being in Syria, was helping people from the White Helmets, and just helping wounded people get to safety. Can uh, I just interject for a second there? The White Helmets, who are the White Helmets? So the White Helmets is called the Syrian Civil Defense. So they're basically similar to, say, they're probably a joint combined of being a firefighter, an ambulance, and an SES worker. Um, they are your civil defense sort of thing when some strike or some problem happens. Uh they're called the Syrian Civil Defense, but most people have known them as the White Helmets. Um, and the White Helmets, basically, there they they wore Purzel white mountain climbing helmets with torches, and they weren't really trained. There were more people that lived in the area, but they got a little bit of training, and it's just that the desire to help people is what got them. Basically, it's still a volunteer job. You don't get paid for doing this, you know. Um, you know, and you're most likely probably going to die um, doing the job, uh, which is probably the unfortunately sad bit. But um, it's a devotion to people and a devotion to saving and helping humanity. Uh, and it's this noble cause that uh, you just can't you can't walk away from it. Or you can, but yeah, you you don't want to walk away from the people that get hurt in this war that they didn't do anything to you know start the war you know and for people that like live in syria aleppo and stuff 
these people don't want to lose their land and properly property. Like if you think about it, like, you know, you probably invested in your house, you know, all your furniture, all of that sort of stuff. You probably, I don't know, you, if say, you know, your house is worth $300,000 and war is happening in the area and somebody says, I'll buy your land and stuff for $10,000 and you can flee to Europe and try and live a better life. Would you take that much of a loss? To... Me personally, I would tell them to get fucked. Yeah. Well, that's what most people are like in this war zone. It's just like yep. they are willing to stand their ground and their land and home. Most of them don't want to fight. They'll just take whatever's in power. I mean, this becomes the problem, obviously, with ISIS, where they rolled into Mosul and nobody wanted to fight them. No one, you know, because then you end up dying and they take your land anyway. So, you know, it's just well, we'll just let the powers that be take over and we'll take to their rules and their regulations. Um, yeah, so that inherently sort of, yeah, is what it's actually through is just help people from, you know, that don't want to become migrants and flee and be refugees because being refugees is a difficult thing. It's actually fascinating to hear that side of the story because the the amount of times people who live in sort of, you know, very sheltered countries like we do here will sit there and go, why don't you just leave? Why don't you just get out? And they sort of don't understand it. You know, if you've invested an entire life in something, it's not that fucking easy. No, it's not. You know, you lose your car, you lose, you know, you, you're not going to make, you know, you're not going to be able to sell your car at the same price that you, you know, you, you paid for it. I was in South Sudan. Uh, when all the shit was like kicking off and this one guy wanted to get out and pay for an air ticket and he sold me his brand new uh, ute that was worth at least 40,000 40, US dollars for four grand so he could just get an air ticket and go out of South Sudan. Shit. You know, I took the car because I needed a car to be able to travel because everybody was fleeing um and this car actually helped me a lot and the guy who ended up becoming my fixer he was a driver and so it was the perfect gift to give him at the end of the day so instead of being able to give him money i gave him basically a job so he became a fixer for so many other journalists that uh were looking for fixers in the area and he had a car that came with it so you know he could actually charge himself more money so um yeah, yeah, that's very nice you, you, you do during wartime, you know, having to sell off things so you can flee. But yeah, you will probably, you know, as a refugee, you will make very little money. And then when the war is over, you probably will not be able to get back your house or whatever, you know. Not the, a chance. The other party's either taken over it, it's either been burnt, destroyed. Um, you're coming back home to nothing, basically. Yeah. So you're the choice of starting over with nothing, coming home to nothing. You, you've got no way to turn. Yeah. So, you know, um, so you feel for all these people. And, you know, this became highly addictive being a combat medic. And I also got part of doing a documentary called The Volunteers, uh, which is in uh, Kurdish Syria. So we, I went over to do a documentary on the foreign volunteers that were joining the Kurdish militias, the YPG and the YPJ, um, that's the female side of the Kurdish uh, Kurdish army, um, that were fighting against ISIS. Um, so 
we end up setting up a combat unit that was able to uh, do medical work and help treat wounded civilians. So when they were doing operations to take back cities, uh, we would try and get the civilians and get them to safety. Um, that was extremely, yeah, an intense, intense job because we had a lot of, we dealt with a lot of children that were hurt and wounded and a lot of children died. Uh, I ended up going home early and I later on went and did work in Mosul. So I ended up coming back to Mosul and doing work there. Um, there were a lot of, uh, especially a lot of Christian missionaries that were there. Um, there's a guy called David Eubank, who's from uh, the Free Burmese Rangers. He's a he's an ex Special Forces Ranger. He's a deep devoted sort of like Christian and stuff. So you had dudes that were like that who were devoting their time to you know go out and help people um, and try and get them to safety. At the same time, they were also you know fighting the war. Um, and it's an intense sort of thing of, you know, can I rush in and go and pick up this wounded person, stop them from bleeding, and then get back to safety with them on my back? Um, that was the particular point that I'd gotten to in my life, basically. Um, trying to, yeah, stop people from dying. And it hurt. <laughs> Every day was a hard day. Uh, did you end up with major, major PTSD from this or what? No, I didn't end up with PTSD um, because the way I think about it, I, I'm also think about all the, the all the good times that I had and probably the times that I, you know, I'm just drinking this found beer and stuff that's in ISIS territory. Obviously, somebody's like hid that from ISIS. And we've managed to find it. And it's like, thank God. <laughs> I can do with a cold one right now. You know, um, there was a great story where I think, yeah, we were at a village that was going to get overrun by ISIS. Uh, we, were, we were about to be overrun. There were so many of them. And all the Kurds that we were with, they were just like, fuck, we're going to shoot all of our bullets, all of our rockets, and take all the beer that's left over in this, like you know, in this uh, supermarket that we're on top of. <laughs> so you know, we basically everyone just fired as many bullets as they could all over the place. It just shattered all the sort of like you know, all the positions that ISIS was in. We fired all the RPGs and stuff, and then we just fucking booted it out of in our cars and stuff. And we all had about whole bunch of uh, slabs of beer and we're just sculling these beers while just laughing our heads off. Um, <laughs> and the guy, and we're singing, they're, they're singing all these Kurdish songs and the guys, the driver's probably pretty drunk and pretty happy that he doesn't see the safety barrier. And we hit that safety barrier at about 140 kilometers an hour. Um, and we go spinning out of control but we were still on our fucking, uh, you know, on our tires and stuff. And we just end up just being in front of this Kurdish checkpoint. And beer has gone all over the whole fucking cabin. We're all saturated in beer. And we just look at each other and we piss ourselves laughing. <laughs> yeah. So when I think about the, the bad times, I really think more so about the good times. The, 
there was fairly bad times and the bad times are really just it's having to deal with children and babies yeah and that's the hardest bit babies and children um that have you know unfortunately passed away and you're trying to pump their heart and hopefully hope that they'll breathe but that's not going to happen um i think the worst moment that i think i've ever been was with the white helmets where a bit uh airstrike had hit a bus a public bus and all the people had pretty much been killed uh there was a woman holding a baby the baby had died obviously because all of the air is sucked out from the airstrike but the blast had basically incinerated her face and her head um and i couldn't bear the idea that i was going to wrap her up without her head i didn't know where her head was i just thought maybe it just blasted and it's flown somewhere and so i was looking for it and i was in tears and i really broke down and started crying it's like we can't bury this woman like this way and my friend my friend in the white helmets is trying to explain to me that sometimes this is how it is you know we don't find all this person's body you know gets incinerated like yeah and it's really hard to fathom that this is how intense a bomb could be that war could be that you know you can't do right or justice to somebody who has passed away yeah and you're not and you don't feel like you're doing justice for their relatives and stuff and having to tell them that this is how they die and unfortunately i don't you know there's nothing left of them really um so when i but this stuff doesn't keep me up at night unfortunately um oh you're probably one of the lucky ones in that old moment i definitely would i mean I've, i've been with a lot of soldiers and stuff and they talk about this sort of thing as well and their close encounters um i think a lot about the close encounters where i just almost been killed um the first time I ever real first close encounter was actually in Mogadishu in Somalia. Mm-hmm. And I was filming for an ambulance. I was doing, uh, shooting the news and I was filming with a ambulance crew, uh, called lifeline. And we we're going through a checkpoint and these young Al Shabaab kids, um, they're the sort of rebel party in Mogadishu. They had like a set up checkpoint and stuff. And, Instead of letting the ambulance through, they just started firing their AK-47s. They killed the driver. They killed the medic that was in front. And I was in the back filming, and obviously the driver was killed, and he stepped on the foot foot brake really hard. And I went flying into the front window, and then I came flying back. And I was knocked out, knocked the fuck out unconscious. And so when I woke up, the guys, the Al-Shabaab had looted inside the car just figured i was dead because i was covered in blood um and just left left the driver and the medic just dead in the front of the car Jesus. Um, i had to take the driver out and i had to drive to the hospital now my, my thing was i didn't i didn't know the most scariest part and probably thing if i think about the ptsd that sort of goes with it the post-traumatic was driving to the hospital because yeah. One, I didn't know the streets of Mogadishu. I, I didn't want to go through another checkpoint. That was terrifying. <laughs> you know? yeah. Um, but yeah, there is nothing so much that sort of triggers 
um, these post-traumatic uh, things. I've I've acted in a few films, uh, and yeah, when you get into that sort of, they've asked me to get into a set mode of, uh, of thinking, and you think about these moments and stuff, and it's like, yeah, you know, it's really intense these feelings, and you're able to convey it. Um, I was working on a film recently where the main character was a was a war photographer, and I was able to talk to her about a lot of the feelings that I had about PTSD or stress um, and trauma, and some of the hard things, so she could try and understand it because you know she was an actor, but she'd never been to a war zone. So I was explaining to her a lot of the stories that I'm explaining you. And, uh, you know, the way that she sort of saw it, you know, she was horrified by the way that I talk. And sometimes I feel weird about the way that I talk because I can now construct how it happened and why it happened. And I can think of it more in a logical sort of sense than an emotional sense. So I've, maybe I've desensitized myself, but... I am able to sort of get past that emotional side of feeling trauma or feeling fear. And I don't feel that fear anymore because I'm here and I'm safe. Um, and, you know, I think what I lasted in the last, uh, in the last sort of uh, talk and stuff, I'm, thank I'm, I'm very thankful for my life. And I'm thankful for my life, you know, pretty much every day. So I've gotten through these traumatic moments and i'd like to let them go that's fair that's absolutely fair um there's a lot of people especially that sort of came back from a lot of war zones where sort of they sort of had this live for the day mentality it seems to me like you've absolutely got that too um <clears throat> yeah it's, it seems like a pretty normal reaction to me for you know certain people as the ptsd will be normal for other people yeah i think a lot of things is just Sometimes you just don't have to bottle it in. Maybe you don't have to tell people exactly what happened, but it's bottling in a lot of that feelings and emotions that what really destroys people, destroys soldiers and stuff. Um, moral injury and guilt is basically what can, uh, you know, basically cause a lot of depression, mental problems, and, you know, unfortunately, suicide. Mm. And, you know, but I've been somebody who's been very proactive in talking about what has happened to me and being able to promote people to talk about their experiences. And, you know, if they cry, they cry. But, you know, um, there's no judgment because it's getting past that trauma and realizing that we should be grateful for being alive. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of people are not going to make it. Um, you know, and that's what you're probably going to be sad about. But these people, you know, they're to be remembered and to be immortalized and remembered for the great and good things that they've done. If you've had somebody that has, you know, unfortunately passed away in your memories and stuff, think about the great things that have happened to them. Um, so one of the things that, especially in Kurdish uh Kurdish, uh, the martyrs are very important. So to the YPG and the YPJ, all the people that came to go fight against ISIS, if they passed away, their photo and stuff is remembered on the boards 
you know, that they were to be remembered for their courage to be able to stand up uh, against, you know, tyranny and whatever. Um, and we should sort of promote that people are willing to struggle uh, for a better life. Um, so, yeah, if you're ever going through tough times, think about all the good times. Wise advice. Very wise advice. So, um, mate, as obviously you've told me about the uh, getting hit in the front and they raided everything. Was that your closest call or was that sort of uh, only one of many? No, that was just one of many. Oh, um, it's one of many. One of many. Any, any sort oh. of uh, come to mind right now or do we have to give you a bit of time for that one? No, there was one time, I mean, one of the closest is in Kobani where um, literally we were getting rushed by the Taliban, uh, by ISIS. Um, we're getting rushed by ISIS. They'd come from the Turkish side, which seemed like a very safe side, but they came from the Turkish side from a silo and stuff. And there was like 20 or 30 of them. We were probably about four or five. Um, and they were coming from the, the other side and we were just like basically gunned down. Uh, the commander I was with, he um, took about he took about four or five bullets to his stomach. This guy still lived. Oh. But that was probably a big fight out for us. And I ended up having to pick up, I picked up the commander's handgun and I fired back and we held our ground until um, reinforcements were able to come and, and um, kill the attackers. But that was scary as fuck. Oh, fuck yeah. Um, I actually was going to ask you how many times you actually, whether you actually picked up arms or not. And that sort of answered that question for me. Did you have to pick up arms a few times or was it mostly just the camera and the sort of medic stuff? Um, mostly I just yeah picked up the camera and medic stuff. There have been times, but um, that's the only time I've you know, really like made it uh, made that, made that stand. I was standing up for my own life. Um, of course. It happened similarly with uh, when I was embedded with U.S. military as a as a journalist as a photographer, and um, we'd been hit by a mortar of the car, and um, the soldiers in front of us were grievously injured, and I managed to pick up his M4 and was able to fire back at the mortar team, um, and stop the mortar team from being able to fire another one back at us. Um, how did the how did the military generally feel? about having sort of, you know, just a, a photographer next to them at certain times? Did they sort of feel like, hey, you're a fucking joke, get out of here? Or did they just sort of take you on as like, well, you're here and, you know, that's fine, but we don't need to protect you, you you're on your own? Um, oh, no, everyone takes a, a, a sense of responsibility over you, so they don't really want to do it, especially if the shit happens, like, you know, if the if the shit goes down and we're getting fired at it and stuff, you know, they don't want to be responsible for the person who's not firing back, you know, mm. um, who's filming them. Also, they go through tragic times, like you know, if they lose their comrade, yep. you know, that's a hard time for them. You know, yeah. Um, if the if the fighting is over and they've got to pick up their dead, they don't want you there photographing how they're feeling. Um, well, thank you later um, because that was a sensitive moment for them and somebody actually caught it and they were able to, you know, seeing those photos or video, they're able to process that moment. Um, but you know, at that time and stuff, they don't really want you there. Um, I had a close time where, um, 
we the in Kabul in the city, um, the the city was under attack. The British embassy was under attack. They had taken over this construction site that was near a supermarket, and the Taliban were firing rockets at the British embassy, at the U.S. embassy, uh, Japanese embassy, most of all the embassies in the area, and. I jumped over the fence. All of the photojournalists were all trying to get inside. And I set up a way to jump over one fence into another fence and try and get myself to the construction yard. So I got myself to the construction yard, and there was a lot of wounded uh, Afghan police officers. And so I did my best. I, I sort of rushed in there, and I grabbed some of these police officers, and I pulled them out out of uh, fire and stuff. And one was grievously wounded. And we got uh, blankets and stuff, and we were able to use the blankets as stretchers. And I set up these footpaths so you could climb over the fence, uh, the fences and stuff into the other building with all the wounded people and get them out. Now, one of the special commandos uh, thought I was so brave and so smart that he just like, you, you come with me, come with me, come and film with me. Um, and we're in the building. We're getting rocketed. Um, my best friend, Matt, gives me a call. He hasn't called me in ages and stuff, and he decides he's going to call me. So I answer the phone. Because I was just like, I haven't heard from Matt from ages. And he's like, how are you doing, man? I was like, oh, yeah, I can't really speak right now. And then, you know, Rockets is like hitting the thing. He's like, what the fuck's going on? Like this gunfire is like, it's like, yeah, yeah, we're kind of under attack. And I can't really speak so much. He's like, oh, oh I'll call back later. I was like, yeah, you probably should call back later. But I'll, I'll call you back, okay? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And my ex-fiance, well, my fiance at the time she calls me up she's in austria she's austrian mm. um and she has been watching the news and she's called me up and is like you're there aren't you oh no and i didn't know what to say and you know obviously the gunfire and stuff said it for me and she started crying um mm. and uh yeah <laughs> that was a hard one and uh you know it's like yeah i'm i'm there don't worry i'm you know i'm you know we're, we're somewhat safe and obviously rpg fucking blows into this fucking wall yeah. and um yeah anyway I, I gotta hang up and yeah then norwegian special forces come in they their fixer actually punches me in the face uh because they they think of me as a journalist and stuff Mm. Um, and he wants me out, and he, but he also thinks I'm uh, Afghan because I'm brownish. Okay. So, he, first of all, thinks I'm Afghan and you know, starts yelling me in um, diary and stuff to fuck off. And even though the special forces, the Afghan special force uh, commandos have got me there and stuff, um, and yeah, and, uh, I stopped the fixer and stuff it's like don't fucking hit me i will knock you out um but i'll get out on my own my own term and stuff so i came out all the journalists and stuff were all like all over the moon and so I was like, how the fuck what the fuck was it like you know everyone you know i was like literally king of the hill that day um i went and put the photos out and process uh put them out went into the guardian newspaper um it was big um for me and it really set up my career as a war photographer uh, the Ministry of Interior of the Afghan Interior uh, gave, gives me a call, and I said, "Oh, I'd like to connect up with the Afghan commando that I was with." And the Afghan uh, commando had given a great story to the minister and stuff about the work that I've been doing, um, that I did helping people out. That uh, you know they wanted to congratulate me and you know 
feed me <laughs> feed me an enormous amount of food yeah. uh, and they asked for some of my photos and they put their photo my photos they didn't ask me for permission or anything but i didn't really give a shit because you know there was all these photos promoting the afghan commandos and the police as you know to take you know full trust that they're there to protect the country so <laughs> nice man that's huge so yeah you know, uh, i've got a question for you hey um so like you know with all this sort of wartime sort of photography and all that like you know, obviously, you put your life on the fucking line to some heavy degree. That's, like, one of the heaviest stories I've ever heard. Did you actually make good money off this, or was it, like, just enough to get by? Just enough money to get by. Fuck. <laughs> um, the biggest I got it was there was a documentary called The Fighting Season. It was um, – that paid me well, which was, like, 48 US forty eight thousand US dollars a month, um, graphing Afghans uh, American special forces and Afghan special forces, and I did that for four months. Um, that was probably the best I ever got paid mm -hmm. uh, for any film film job. We had big insurance on that. Um, yeah, and when the Battle of Kobani happened, uh, me being the only photographer that was there um, and journalist um, taking photos and stuff, I got paid well so i got paid about 40 45,000 us dollars for two weeks worth of work basically so do you reckon the reason the pay was so low was because there was too many sort of media types out there or was it yeah there's usually a lot of media types so if you unless you're getting the exclusive um yeah that no one else could get your photos you know are worth big money um, but we now live in an age, that, the new digital age, where they're willing to accept a photo that comes from your iPhone and stuff. True. Um, so our job and stuff has been dramatically because we're not we're unable to get there in time to be able to you know get get great photos. Um, but so it's a it's a it's a decision whether or not you know. Do you want to take, you want to put on the, you know, and most of the tabloids or whatever, sensationalists will put, you know, a citizen's photo first over probably, a, you know, a professional photographer. One, it's cheaper um, to do that. And, uh, you know, and as generally this person's has given this way, this photo for free on the internet. So there's, it's able to use, you know. Yeah. Um, so our jobs are slowly declining. So most of the work that I was doing near the end was uh, um, more so assignment photography where we're looking, delving into a particular story or a topic sort of thing. So it's more inv investigative. It's more um, it's, it's more days worth of work than actually just the daily sort of um, the daily grind basically. But the Afghan daily grind, at times, you know, you could definitely, you'd definitely see a suicide bombing, or you'd see an attack and stuff on a convoy at least once a week. You know, you were definitely, you're definitely able to bank in some photos and stuff of the conflict once a week. Right. So you'd sort of get all your work done in one hit, and that would sort of last you for the month, or. Yeah, you could pretty much do that. So, which is what I kind of did. Um, and especially when I was going to, like, I go to South Sudan and I'd be working at South Sudan and I was sending all the photos to Associated Press. 
And the, the edit that I had is like, okay, well, things are kicking off in Ukraine. Um, all the rioting and all that stuffing is happening at uh, Euromaiden. Um, we're probably not going to run photos from South Sudan. So um, we've got photographers and stuff down in, down in Ukraine. So um, you're free to probably, you know, take a break and stuff and go find another story or whatever. Um, and we'll, you, we'll hit you back up if there's something that's sort of hitting up in Africa or something like that. When, when the news is hot, the news is hot. So if you're there at the right moment, work is coming your way. Yep. But yeah. That's absolute yeah. chaos. Hey, dude, so um, I reckon that's about enough for this like, uh, next podcast episode. Uh, well, you got a few more stories? You're keen to hang around for another one sometime? Or? Uh, yeah, I'm always keen for stories. I can tell you about living day life of uh, <laughs> living as an expat in Kabul or, you know, just living as an expat, going day to what freelancer life like looks like. Um, I would definitely be hell keen to hear that, man. That sounds awesome. All right, so look, um, what we'll do, we'll uh, get offline and we'll another session in, man. So thank you so much for getting onto this, mate. Very much appreciated. No worries. No worries at all. All right, folks, thank you for listening to Talking Shit with Fraser, you bastard, and our fantastic host, Jake. Now, folks, uh, if you like what you're listening to, feel free to hit that like button. Feel free to hit the subscribe. And if you think a friend of yours might enjoy this, feel free to hit that share button, and we shall catch you on the next episode. Thank you, Jake. Very much appreciate it, mate. No worries. Thank you very much. Cheers, mate. Catch you next round. Yes. All right. Bye.